Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, a show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Dana Lawson, VP of Engineering at GitHub. I've bumped into Dana's work several times over the last year, and I was particularly interested in both her career resume. She's worked across interesting companies like New Relic, Heptio, and Envision. And I was also interested in recent interviews I'd seen of her where she talked about how platforms impact continuous delivery. I was keen to dive into this topic in much more detail. If you like what you hear today, I definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge Stack, also our open source Ambassador API Gateway, and our CNCF hosted telepresence tools too. Hello, Dana, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Daniel. Could you briefly introduce yourself and share a recent career highlight, please? I am Dana Lawson, VP of Engineering at GitHub. And a recent career highlight would be I've joined the dark side of product engineering after a very long, awesome career in platform and systems. So I think a recent career highlight is just being at GitHub and, and, and sh- shipping some forward-facing products. We just released free private repos for teams. And, you know, we've been planning this forever and, you know, all this sh- stuff going down in the world and the timing was weird, but it's just, it's just really awesome because I truly believe that the world runs on software. It, it's just, it's just exciting because that's why I do it. I do it for, for the developer community. I do it for the next generation and like, it's awesome. It's just awesome. So that's a career highlight. A very recent one is like my team did that. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> totally cool. I'll definitely dive into a bit more of that in a minute Dana, in terms of like leadership. But first of all, I wanted to talk about some of the like developer loops, developer experience. Yeah. So when I talk about that, I'm kind of meaning that capability of having an idea, either yourself, your team, coding, testing, deploying, releasing, verifying, all that good stuff. Now I looked in your LinkedIn and I see you got super interesting career highlights, New Relic, Envision, Heptio, GitHub, big hitting names there. Without naming any of those names, I'm guessing, could you describe your worst developer experience? Oh my gosh. Okay. Worst developer experience without naming names. Well, I'm going to just say this. I have had the joy, pleasure, and pain of getting to work on three monoliths. Everywhere I go, I seem to attract a monolith problem and a monorepo problem. And when you have a monolith, it really introduces challenges. You know, there's no one way, right way to have your architecture, right? You know, there's this yep. hot news of like, oh, everything has to be microservices. And before that, guess what? Everything was service oriented. And guess what? Before that, it doesn't matter. You got to pick the right architecture. But with that, it does change how you approach your dev cycle and loop. And so you can see I'm bouncing around because I do not want to answer this question. I would just have to say in my long experience, the similarities that all companies I've been with are pretty close to the same, um, especially as you're trying to transform your environment while you're, you know, transforming how your team works. Because if you're making architectural changes, it's going to change how you approach your deployment systems. And so I would say the worst would have to be just manual tooling. You know, there was this one place in history where we built our own homegrown tool for change management because we had, we had PCI requirements and FedRAMP requirement. Well, it was pre-FedRAMP, but we had SOX compliance. And so when you have compliance, you have this 2 two-flight system checklist, right, to ensure that your code's safe. We had the most manual process you could ever imagine. Mm. Uh, 
I think we were using Subversion. So I can tell oh, you yeah. like that it's Subversion and Tortoise. And we built this like little change order website. And literally I'd have to go in there every day because it's a startup. There's no release managers and go and say, did somebody go and like <laughs> change? And it was all manually driven. And I think we would deploy like twice a day. And that was too fast for back in the day. That's not bad. Yeah, yeah. It's not bad. It's not bad, especially when we're talking about monoliths. But it still was completely just so much administrative overload. People were just cutting corners because it just took so long to get your code in production. You know, Mm. people are building their own pipelines to the side that they shouldn't. Like the worst is like ops changes when people are like, oh, this is going to take too long to do a no-op infrastructure change. I'm just going to SSH in the box. I don't know. They've all been kind of janky, but I'm I'm really excited about like our modern tool set. I will say in the last five, even I'll give them, you know, eight years, I won't go full decade, the growth in, in just developer tooling and the attention in having pragmatic tool sets to do repeatable things has been Mm -hmm. amazing. And just all of the new technology of stitching it together for you, the ease of stitching it together where your developer cycle is like, really cool merge to master let the stuff go but it's that still there's still a ton of friction on the local environment like there's still Mm, so much friction on getting your local environment set up and you know i think that's the next area where people continue to to put more energy into it it's like cool we got kubernetes we can orchestrate we can deploy we have github actions and other ci cd providers that can automate that workflow but like what about your local what about local dev it's still an area that i think needs some love and care yeah, totally. And I'd, I'd actually love to pick your brains on that a bit deeper. Something as you're talking there made me think around like some of the tooling in my career has progressed like almost the actual tooling itself, the CD tooling has progressed from monolith to microservices to abuser analogy there. Do you know what I mean? In terms of being able to compose things through like actions, GitHub actions, that kind of stuff. Do you think that's a trend we're going to continue seeing now as in being able to compose your workflows? Oh, definitely. I mean, everybody has their own small little tweak to their workflow that may mm. be you know, I mean, we want to say that there's a Nirvana out there, a Nirvana tool set that every engineer in every company can utilize to get their mm. little product at scale, right? It, yeah. it was Docker, it was containers, and now it's Kubernetes, yeah. it was serverless. I mean, it's been everything, right? Like <laughs> Nirvana tool set that can allow you to have that. And the reality of it is, is you have to have tools that are extensible. And so mm. I think when you build these pipelines, And the way that all of us are approaching it is that extensibility so that you can have Mm -hmm. that that piece that goes out, but in a predictable way, right? So I believe that it's going to continue to happen. I mean, you also see companies like Zapier who are doing it right with not even like the deployment side, but they came out and they're like, oh, cool. We can stitch together all the other pieces by doing these zaps. A, A simple one is like, oh, I need to order certificates. Guess what? You still have to go and order like site certificates if you are, right? And so how can we automate that certificate creation? How can we do all these things that increase that kind of dev workflow from from local environment to production? There's so many things we take for granted and don't think about in our workflow. And we're trying to get to like Mm -hmm. nirvana of everything's automated. Well, as most as everything can be automated. And that includes doc writing, release notes, everything. I totally hear you. Let's take, let's take a step back to the local uh, sort of dev experience you mentioned there. Because, yeah, I totally struggle with this. I've actually bought like a 64 gig laptop just so I run so many containers. Yeah, just it makes my life easier. But what's your thoughts about the current local dev experience? And where do you think it's going to go with things like Kubernetes and so forth? When Kubernetes was introduced, a lot of product engineers were like, 
how am I actually going to know how my code is running? Because I don't have a local environment that mimics what production actually does and the orchestration behind it. Like, how do I get this container in a pod localized, right? That's very challenging. And so I really think we have to be smart about it. We, we come and we crack the nut on how we can, you know, automatically have high availability and capacity using orchestration and different types of rule sets, whether it's on, you know, your edge or internal on how you scale, descale and provision, right? We've got that solved. I think now it's like taking that local environment and giving it more of that production feel is key, right? Because mm. we can do as much as we can do locally, but you're not having real load. You're not having the network yep. layer, especially when you add in Kubernetes and now you have the software driven network layer. It brings in another nuance that you don't account for because we all know it's not real until that code's out in the wild. And so <laughs> I think trying to get local environments closer to production and being smart about it and bringing the dev to that experience so they can think about reliability and they can think about accessibility because that's our jobs, right? There's so many products out there. There's so many companies out there. You can have an amazing product, but if it's not fast and, and, and speedy and the user experience is just not even... It could be slightly, slightly upgraded. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, whatever, I'm going to go to this company that's always up, maybe not have your complete feature set. And so long story longer, I think it's incredibly important to have that local experience is mimic as close as to production. But the reality is, is like the way that we're doing it, unless we have these mega machines, I am a sinner that I now just have MacBook Airs and iPads because, yeah, I know I'm an executive and that's all we do, right? <laughs> you know, ops. But anytime I do try to write, any sense of code, <clears throat> I'm just like, why do I have this book? My computer yeah, yeah. comes on. I'm just like, I almost want to rage quit because <laughs> yeah. you just don't write code anymore because you can't, your, your little <clears throat> MacBook Air is not built to do that. And I think <laughs> the reality of it is, is we need to have a way to, especially given uh, what's going on in the world, a way that we aren't always, I know we're mostly everybody is at home now, but we can go yeah. where our environments are, right? And I think it's also important now, like I maybe want to go sit on the couch and program on my MacBook Air. I want a tool that allows me to do that. And I think it's happening. I mean, we're talking right now, DataWire definitely has, has jumped into that early on. I was, I was a, a guinea pig about, you know, their teleport environments. And I swear Daniel did not ask me to ask this. I just, <laughs> this is what I think about. This is what I think about. So I think that's our next step, really. You know, Kubernetes, we saw for that. How can we get that local environment really to feel like production in a safe way? Totally makes sense. And yeah, something that you said there, something I've sort of struggled with. So I bumped into telepresence, like exactly the same kind of deal as in like putting my laptop in the cluster. I've seen a bunch of folks, I think it was AWS folks I was chatting to, they're pitching more about we should be doing our development in the cloud. So it's almost like we've got dumb terminals. And the MacBook Air, perfect example. Chromebook, yes. perfect example, yeah. What's your thoughts on, on like the kind of dumb terminal approach where we're coding on a VM or something in the cloud? I, I think I'm, I'm ready for it. Let's do it. I want to be able to code on my on my iPad. I know it sounds cool. <laughs> I do. Um, but honestly, because of just having the experience of working with hosting, like it sounds awesome, but shit's expensive. Like it is expensive. <laughs> yeah. And a part of me is yeah. like, oh, that's great. Cool. Because think about it. Like local environment is actually in the cloud. You're all ready to go. Your changes mm -hmm. are already in your server, right? Ho hopefully like within your protected server cluster, whether it be host yep. or on-prem, it's just like, okay, cool. I'm going to promote to the next few environments. 
just boom, like a click of a button and not like, mm. hold on, hold on, let me do this pull request. Let me go merge it in and let me do this and that. It's all there. I think it's going to happen. But I think the thing that people have to realize is the cost behind it. Cloud computing is expensive. It's expensive. And it, and rightly so, because you're paying for that tool set that is, is around it. You're paying for the actual physical space. You know, there's pieces that go within it that we pay for. So that's the one place that makes me nervous. I'm like, it sounds great, but is it fiscally responsible? I don't know. Somebody's going to solve it though. Somebody's going to solve it. Mm. They're solving it right now. But let's be real, right? Not all projects are the same. There are going to be some that you're just like, no way, this is not work for me. It just, and, it, and that's totally fine. Or the opposite, you're doing something that doesn't need that kind of environment. Maybe you're just running a Jekyll page or a stat, you know, like, mm -hmm. do, you need, do you actually need anything? You know, like what is your IDE? What is your developer space? Like you're not going to need that many tool sets if that's what you're doing. So I think there's this desire sometimes for us to go get the hottest tools. Oh, yeah. Ask yourself, do you really need that? Like, come on, do you need it? Like I still like will open up, you know, Emacs and just throw some stuff in there depending <laughs> on what I'm doing or Vim, right? Like depending yeah. on what you're doing, it's the fastest way. So I think always being open to like what's working for you at that moment is always going to reign supreme no matter how you develop. It's like, don't mm. taste the hotness, do the thing that works for you. Yeah, so anyway, so I hear similar arguments actually with things like PaaS as well. Like yeah. A bunch of folks like spinning up Kubernetes for like a Jekyll site or something. Yeah. And it's just like, you don't need Kubernetes for that. Heroku's fine. Yeah. Well, What's your thoughts on, on that? A hundred percent. Like I think in one sense, I was a very early Kubernetes adopter and like the barrier of entry to get it up was kind of challenging mm. back in the day. It was, you know, I, I still lived through the, the horrors of going from uh, version 0 0.8 to 11. And like you had to do a... All y'all Kubernetes nerds know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> cool because you couldn't just do a live upgrade. You actually, it was it was painful. Anyway, it's easier to use now. It's available. Most, um, you know, hosting providers have built in support, yep, yep. support for, you know, for Kubernetes. Vanilla Kubernetes, the community has done amazing. That Kubernetes team, oh my gosh, all the randos in the world. That is one of my favorite <laughs> projects and it always will be, you know, being a Heptio alumni. <clears throat> oh, of course. Yeah. Right. But I think just because it's out there and it's accessible, you still got to ask yourself, do you need that? Because it is still, you're still adding on complexity. And when you add on complexity, you add the opportunity for error, whether it be system failure, human error or other. So you got to ask yourself like this page or this product doesn't need this complexity because I want to be able to remediate and respond as quickly as possible. Some failure does happen. And if you add all this stuff you don't need, it's going to make it harder. And then what do you do? The customers get sad and they mm. rage quit on you and leave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. I, I, it's something I've struggled with in my career. Like Docker was one of the shining examples. Yeah. I, mean, I totally went Docker mad. Yeah. Back in like you know, five years, whenever it was. Have you got any advice now in the leadership position? How, say I was one of your engineers and I was going, Docker, Docker, Docker. Have you got any advice for me to like try and pull me back from the, the shiny tech? I'm so excited. You are excited and curious about new techs. I think we should always watch trends. I don't think we should always go and invest in them, but I think it's important to watch the trends. And I would ask, I would ask you, I'd be like, why? I know. I was just like, Dana, why? Why do you, why do you, you tell me why? Because you know what? Developers are smart humans. I typically are <laughs> informed. I ask a question why, I expect an informed answer. You'll be like, oh, because we can do, I don't know, X, Y, and Z. If, if the answer doesn't meet the need, then I'll say, that's really cool. Maybe this is something we need to investigate for the future. Because mm. your hope there at a startup, right? Our hope with any startup is that it makes it. 
And so it's yes. about timing too. And if you're looking through that startup lens, I'm like, ask yourself, how can we grow into this? And if your answer was really awesome, I, I think then it's like, cool, let's do an experiment. If you're running an agile shop, you have capacities for experiments. I always say if it's an informed decision and answer, because I definitely am from the book of knowledge of like, don't ask permission, just come with me in an informed nice. way. And so yeah, yeah. I would be like, hey, why don't you do a time boxed measurable experiment to see if this meets our needs? Because you shouldn't do anything without measurement. You absolutely mm. should, you, you, you know, and so that's one of the ways that I would come back to a dev because I don't want to want hamper curiosity. I also want to do the right thing for the business. That's my job. And two, you know, I love the fact that we're thinking strategically that our company, our business is going to grow to what we need for these different types of technology. So it's finding that balance, mm -hmm. of, you know, promoting curiosity, doing it in a safe way that promotes the business. And then, you know, like I said, watching the trends and, and, and thinking about what you will be in, in three, six, 12, one year, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't know. I love it when engineers hit me up with that stuff because that shows me they're thinking about the future. Now it may not be the right time, but at least they're thinking about it unless they think about it right now. And then I'm like, okay, you just were on Hacker News. I was on Hacker yeah. News. Like, I saw the same article you did. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> yeah, watching the Hacker News, actually, that is a good tip for leadership. Yeah, check out what's, what's currently trending. Oh, my God. Check it out. And then when you get a random Slack message of like, do you see this? You're like, hold on. I know this is like probably trending on Hacker News. <laughs> I call it Hacker News Development, just like Twitter-driven development. There's two types yeah. of shit there. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah, I like that. It's a good tip. So we, we touched a few times on this one day about sort of the business aspect of stuff. And I totally got this as my career has progressed. I wish I'd learned some of this stuff earlier, I guess. But how important do you think it is for all engineers, really, whether front end, back end, ops, whatever? How important is it for them to understand the business context they're working in? I think it's incredibly important. Do I think they need to know all of the customer use cases? Do I think that there is a need to dive as far as like a product manager would? No, I mean, that's a separate job. However, I do think we all have a responsibility to understand what we're building, why we're building it, and what is the next steps in evolution, right? To have that kind of product acumen, especially when you're in a startup, because you're going to wear multiple, multiple hats. You know, there's going to be cases where you are the PM, designer, support person, office manager. I do everything in addition to being the number one lead developer or just another developer on the team. There's going to be a time that you're doing all of this. If you don't have product sense, how do you know what you're building? How can you go and partner and collaborate and cooperate and make the good decisions? As engineers, it is our responsibility to go and ask good questions because mm -hmm. we all, I keep coming back to it. We all want this pristine, awesome experience, but it takes time mm -hmm. to get there. And sometimes we have to be real about the time and, and to be able to make those trade-offs, you have to know what the customer experience is. What is that end user experience? Because honestly, that's all that really matters at the end of the day is how the human interacts with whatever you're building and how they feel about it. And if an engineer doesn't have any kind of concept on that, on what they're building, mm -hmm. they're going to build something shallow. They're not going to ask the good questions. They're just, I mean, it, it just squashes creativity and also it pushes agency and ownership to somebody mm -hmm. else. I like to build teams that have a sense of ownership, right? That have a complete line that says, I, I, I am invested in this. I am motivated and I believe in delighting my customers. You can't do that if you're just giving the list of features to develop and not ask yeah. questions. And so I think it's important. 
but I think there's a limitation. And honestly, it depends upon your experience and skill level, right? As a new engineer, you should have awareness and you should be hungry for it, but you should be focusing on delivering the task, right? You're more than likely going to be having a senior engineer partnering with you saying, hey, let's drive through this because you're just honing your skills. But yeah, I think yeah. senior engineer, staff engineer, especially as we get in those higher ranks of, of technical ability, you know, you're working solo, you know, your staff principal engineer, you're typically tagged to go do an MVP to run an experiment to try a proof of concept. And how can you do that when you have no idea of like the end product or the, the user experience? And so it's incredibly mm -hmm. important. You should start honing those skills in the beginning of your career, but don't over worry about it. I come back to like being curious is probably the most important thing. And then also it's going to allow you to build better. So when your product manager team are like, oh, we're going to do this. And maybe there's a technical impediment. You're still thinking about that user experience. Well, it's like, okay, why did we want to do mm -hmm. this? We wanted this user experience, but we have this, you know, engineering, you know, limitation or impediment. Well, how can we still work towards that experience? And I think understanding the end experience, why you work through the impediments is so important. And in a part of my career, I had the pleasure of working at Envision, which is really design oriented. And I, for the most part of my career, I've been a platform engineer, which isn't necessarily externally customer facing, but I do believe in the principles of design thinking. And I believe every engineer should go through some of those exercises, because even if you're building an internal API or you're building a tool set to support your production infrastructure, there is still a person that will be operating that yep. at some oh, yes. point. There is a person that will be interacting. So thinking about that first, even if you're on an internally facing team, is going to delight your people because that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're trying to enable developer productivity. You're trying to take away some of the cognitive load on the administrative or, or, or system overhead so that they can push those features in a reliable, predictable way. I wish I'd heard that advice like 10 years ago, probably in my, my beginning of my or 15 years ago, beginning of my career. That's like, yeah, golden, golden. On that note, so you and I are talking off mic in the beginning about how do you balance up all the requirements of skills as, a, as an engineer these days? You have got this business focus. I'm, I'm totally down with that too. You've clearly got to be good at whatever you do, be it development, QA, ops. But then I've noticed in particular around development to sort of push to be even more ops capable. Have you got any advice on how as an engineer, say I'm sort of a mid-level engineer, I'm getting the business ideas, my coding's good, but I'm now being asked to understand more about the operational aspects of the platform. That can be a lot to some folks. I mean, it is a lot. In the teams that I've been able to support and had the privilege and benefit of working with, like these are the transformations that a lot of companies are making because once again, um, we're getting smarter and the barrier of entry for doing the offsite is lowering. And we also are thinking about how we can have more ownership in that meantime to recovery and meantime to availability, mm -hmm. really be closer to home so that we can fix it faster, right? Like you think about why are we pulling people in closer on all of these primitives? And it is at the end of the day to have a really highly reliable site with quality, right? you know, with just yeah. quality and care. And so mm -hmm. it can be a lot. And I think really we've been talking about DevOps and building developer tools for operations for quite a while now. And it's really starting to come across the board in the industry. I'm seeing enterprise companies take this leap into these tool sets. They may have not before. And it's, it's a cultural shift. And so coming back to your question, I think it's about one, Everybody learns in a different way and they have different backgrounds. I'm a mid-level engineer. Maybe I didn't work at a place that had me do this particular thing. Maybe I was at a large, large company where I had a very focused 
job because you have the startup where it's like, oh, wow, my mental cognitive load is, is overloaded because I'm doing everything. And I don't know if I can take this operational type of expertise in, any further. And then you have the other version, right? I'm an enterprise engineer that's very focused. And we have four or five different teams that handle that. It's going away. Tool sets are doing that. It's becoming clickable. Mm. So what I think is, is about creating a culture. And then also that's where it starts. Like, is this important to your culture? Why is it important to your culture? Understanding why somebody should learn this because you can find the space if you believe in the reason, right? We always say this, I'm too busy. I say mm -hmm. this all the time, which if it is a priority in your life, you're probably not too busy and everybody has 20 minutes they can carve away. And so I think it's about putting the pressure and talking about with your leadership and your manager about like your personal capacity and then saying, hey, like what's more important to go deeper on knowing business knowledge because my career wants to go in this way or is it mm. important for me? Because it comes down to a personal decision, but I think it starts with the culture. Like first and foremost, why is it important to your team? Is this something you need to double down in? Are you a startup that has, you know, Jack and Jill's of all trades that have to wear multiple hats? Or maybe yep. you're an enterprise company and it's not that important, but it's good because your next career move maybe be to a startup where yeah. you're asked about this. I think it comes down to your personal desires. And then also like, what's, what's the kind of company that you're in? And then question, say, why is this important to us? And if so, build a culture, ensure that you have the right skills and the curation of skills that I guess the skills in the sense of the support system to build those skills, right? Like if this is new yeah. Yeah. production engineers, get them help, hire SREs and DevOps to mm -hmm. train and learn them, not make it their problem, but to help them understand like how to do this because it's new. So I don't have a one size fits all for that because it really mm -hmm. comes down to who you're working for and what you're doing, but it can be a lot. It just can be a lot. And I think this is where we sit and say, what's most important and where are we at? And then I think personally, you got to ask yourself, what are you driving for? Are you going into management? Are you going into product management? Because at a startup, you may start as an engineer and you mm -hmm. will be in totally different field. You may be in a totally different field. Like I've been a, shoot, I've been a PM. I've been in support. I've been, I've in 21 years, I have probably done every role except <laughs> Yeah. On page, I've never been an actual doc writer, even though like a startup, you write the docs. I think it's yeah. the one title I've never had, uh, <laughs> but you know, you just, you, you got to ask those questions. I like it. I like it a lot. So wrapping up with a couple of final questions, I wanted to get your um, thoughts on what do you think the future holds? Where's the biggest innovation coming down the pipeline? And I'm talking like maybe languages, architectures, platforms. You can definitely spin it from a GitHub slant. I, I don't mind that as in, but what's the most interesting thing you're thinking about in the next few years? Next few years. Well, I mean, it's what we started talking about right now, right? Is like, how can we complete the software development loop and life cycle in a, in a real automated way from local to production? Like for me, that's, that's, that's mm. the place where I'm seeing it. But I'm going to throw one out there for my developers. <laughs> you called it people like Rust. You know, I, I, I've been hating on it for a while, not because it's not awesome, loving Mozilla, but I was like, wow, you know, like React and now we got Rust. I think Rust is going to continue to pick up some momentum. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. I'm watching that one. But honestly, because of my interest and I'm going to just tell you my personal nerd out, it's going to be like that, that local environment, that dev environment, that complete cycle and that circle. What can we do to get into production faster? Right. We all want mm -hmm. to be agile. I think, you know, really using dark data 
uh, and using production load beyond beyond yeah. the local environment, you know, using feature flags and incrementally. We're already doing that. We're already doing that on in the industry. I think it's going to be even more so. It's like, cool, I really want to see how it works. I've gone from my virtual local and it's gone right into production in a Kubernetes pod that has only got 2% of traffic and I can sit and watch it, mm-hmm. put more traffic in it, and maybe it'll double right so I can see the load. These interesting things that help us determine what our future scale is and what it actually does within the systems once those transactions are written, that's what's interesting. And I think that's the next steps for us. And, you know, the continuation of how we store data and like how we present data. That's always so cool and interesting on just with like the enhancements and GPUs and graphics and animation Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And, you know, now I'm getting buzzwordsy, you know, (laughs) learning, machine learning. Come on. Blockchain. Blockchain. (laughs) Blockchain. Oh, you know what? Let's just say the future is blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, that's that's the future. You heard it here. <laughs> nice, very nice. Well, yeah, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting to you, and thanks very much. Thanks, it's been great to be on the show. I appreciate it so much.